So this morning, we are going to continue our year-long series called The Way of Jesus. And as part of this series, we started a brief case study on the life of the Apostle Paul. And the story of the Apostle Paul and his life is just fantastic. It's a wild, real-life story. And it's a story that only a holy God could orchestrate. What we have here is a well-educated man who went from following the law to following Christ. And as Pastor David reminded us over the last few weeks, we all have a story. We all have experiences. And so do the people that we talk about in the Bible. Real people with real stories. And I want to invite you and encourage you this morning that if you've missed any of the previous messages, please go check out Appleton Gospel's YouTube channel to watch or hear anything you may have missed. And I want to start this sermon off by asking you a couple questions. Do you remember the moment when you met Jesus for the first time? Do you remember surrendering your life to him? What was that experience like? No doubt a powerful one. For when you profess Christ as the Lord, you receive the Holy Spirit as your guide as you go through your life. The fact is, whether or not you decide to put your faith in Jesus is the most important choice that any of us will ever have, whether we realize it or not. I want to share really quick my story to faith. I was 12 years old, and my dad was driving me home from my youth group which was called God Squad. It was the, at the time, <laughs> it was the junior high ministry at Elmbrook Church. And I had been a Bible reader for a really long time. I just loved reading my Bible. And when I was 12, my dad was a new-ish believer, probably a couple of years. Uh, but my dad had noticed some not-so-great things about my behavior and some not-so-great changes in me. I, straight, I was swaying away from God's word and what I was reading. I found myself conforming to the world. I struggled as a youth with finding a place to belong. And I struggled with making friends the majority of my childhood. So naturally, I wanted to find a spot to fit in. I was on the verge of rebellion. But instead, that night, I remember crying my eyes out as my dad talked to me about it, and said, Kyle, repent and confess your sins to Jesus and follow him. And so one night in 1994, in my driveway in Franklin, I became a Christ follower and not just a Bible reader. Again, we all have a story, a moment in time where we put our faith in him. And the journeys may be different for each and every single one of us. But the common theme here is that Jesus reaches out to us. The Apostle Paul was no exception. So if you have your Bibles or your Bible apps, turn with me, please, to the book of Acts, chapter 9. We'll also put the verses up on the screens behind me. And while you're turning there, let's recap where we're at with our case study about the Apostle Paul. We left off last week talking about how Saul, known as the Apostle Paul, spoiler alert, um, was the sworn enemy of the way. And that is, the way is what Christ followers were referred to back then. And Saul went from house to house, bringing with him devastation and destruction to the people of God. Saul's mission was to search and destroy. 
And as an example of this, we saw Stephen last week being martyred for his faith and being stoned to death. And Acts chapter 8, it says, Saul approved of the Sanhedrin killing Stephen. We saw a very dark picture of what Saul did, going around persecuting, threatening Christians, and dragging them off to prison. And we'll see that he continues in his mission to the city of Damascus, which is about 130 miles from Jerusalem. So it's about a week's long journey by foot. So what Saul did obviously dishonored God. But what we see after this morning's message, I hope, is really exciting. And we're going to see that Luke, the author of Acts, He'll remind us that the Holy Spirit is alive and he's at work. He's alive and at work in each and every single one of us who profess Christ to be the Lord of their lives, no matter where we've come from. So he has his agenda and he's fixed on it. But now he's about to see the light, literally. So let's get into the text, Acts chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. It says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. This is God's word. A lot to unpack here. So here we go. In the first two verses, we see that Saul does this work of persecution under the direct approval of the highest religious authorities. We see in the beginning of our reading today the, the continued picture of an angry, violent man who is really convinced of his own righteousness. Saul absolutely hated the Lord's disciples. Saul was also highly educated and thought Christianity was wrong and deceptive. Maybe, maybe Saul thought that he was trying to stop a plague of false religion. He was not seeking Jesus when Jesus sought after him. You might say that Saul was decided against Jesus when Jesus decided for Saul. And as we look at verse 2, if anyone belonged to the way, whether men or women, they would take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. It's very significant, significant to us to understand what the way is. The way means that Christianity is more than a belief or a set of doctrines or opinions. Following Jesus is a way of living as well as believing. Bearing this in mind, we can tell there is a Christian community large enough in Damascus for Saul to be concerned and the fact that it's spreading everywhere. And perhaps on his journey to Damascus, Saul thought he was doing God a favor 
trying to get rid of a religion that he thought was false. But God has other ideas. Verses 3 through 6, it says, As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Now God doesn't normally confront us with a heavenly light and an audible voice from heaven. Not normally. But later in the Apostle Paul's story in Acts 22, Paul revealed that when this event occurred, it was in the middle of the day when the sun was at its brightest. And to add to this, Paul says later that this light was brighter than the sun. Saul's reaction to the light to fall to the ground wasn't an act of honor or reverence or worship. It was an act of survival. When Saul hears the audible voice of God, he hears his name called twice. Saul. Saul. When God repeats that twice, it's to display deep emotion. It may not be anger, but deep emotion. And then the voice says, why are you persecuting me? So not only is Saul overwhelmed by the light that's surrounding him, He's being confronted of his crime, which is persecuting Jesus, not men, Jesus. Let's look at that question and emphasize the word me. But we should also emphasize the word why and see that Jesus asked Saul, why are you persecuting me? In other words, hey Saul, why are you doing such a futile thing? Saul thought he was serving God by viciously attacking Christians, but he discovered he was fighting God. And in the text, we see that Saul responds with one question. It's a good one. It's one of the most important questions we can ask. Who are you, Lord? When was the last time you asked that? When was the last time you did a deep dive into the character of God to discover his love for you, to discover his grace and his mercy for you? And following Saul's response, Saul is commanded to get up and to go to Damascus. And then Saul is to be told what to do. Back in that account, forward in the account of Acts 22, Paul was speaking to a large crowd and he tells firsthand his story, the encounter with Jesus. And in Acts 22.10, he adds another question. He says, what shall I do, Lord? What shall I do, Lord? Another life-changing question. Am I right? Hmm. So if you wanted to ask God any question right now, what would that question be? I'm sure that would look different for each and every single one of us in the room. Or if you're listening online, you have other questions as well. So back when I was a teenager in the 1990s, which was a very long time ago, um, there was a Gallup poll done about what three questions someone would like to most ask God. 
And here were the top five responses. Number one, will there ever be lasting world peace? Number two, how can I be a better person? Number three, what does the future hold for my family and for me? Number four, will there ever be a cure for all disease? And number five, why is there suffering in the world? These questions here have something in common. And it's that God already answers these questions in his word. They're not the most important questions for us to ask. But Saul asks the right two questions. Number one, who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? We should all ask this question with a humble heart. And we should ask it directly to God himself. And Jesus, during his ministry on earth, he showed us exactly who God is. And he can answer this question for us. The Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul spent the rest of his life wanting to know more completely the answer to that question. And so should we. And question two is, what do you want me to do? Few of us, if we're honest, would dare ask God this question. But when we do ask that question, we need to ask it with submission to God's will for us and with an obedient heart. And if you do that, hang on to your hats. <laughs> so often we are so concerned and so extremely interested in what God wants other people to do. But a heart that's fully surrendered to God asks, Lord, what would you have me do? And when Saul asked this, Jesus told him only what to do in that moment. In that moment. And that is how often, that is how oftentimes God directs our lives. One step at a time, not all at once. Verses 7 through 9. So the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. This was an experience that was unbelievable to those who traveled to Damascus that day. We see that as Saul opened his eyes, tightly shut in reaction to the heavenly light, he still couldn't see, even after opening his eyes. He was so shaken by the experience, he didn't eat or drink a thing. All he could do was sit in silence, blind. What a humbling experience. And it's probably a time for Saul where he challenged all of his thoughts and his beliefs about who God was and what pleased him. In these three days, Saul was dying to himself. It would be that after these days were completed, he would receive his sight and a new life in Jesus. And here God takes the initiative to save his enemy rather than to smite him. God intervened. And Jesus died for him, too. And now we cannot talk about Saul's conversion without talking about the obedience of a man named 
Ananias. He was an ordinary man, Ananias. He was not an apostle, not a prophet. He wasn't a pastor, an evangelist, or an elder. But God used him because he was an ordinary man. What we do know from Acts chapter 22 about Ananias is that he was a devout observer of the law and he was highly respected by all the Jews living there. So while Saul is in his blindness, this encounter between Ananias and God is happening. Let's go back to the scriptures and pick up in verse 10. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized and after taking some food, he regained his strength. This is God's word. God spoke to and revealed himself differently to Saul and to Ananias. Saul had a bold, almost a violent confrontation from God. But Ananias was in a place to hear God call to him. And Ananias had the discernment to understand who it was that was calling him and then say in obedience, Here I am, Lord. Yes, Lord. We shouldn't be surprised if people like Saul, who was an unbeliever before his conversion, receive God's word with doubt and with resistance. But yet we should expect disciples of Jesus to receive God's word like Ananias did, to say, here I am, Lord, here I am. And look how specific Ananias' vision from God was. God told him about a specific street Straight Street, a specific house, the house of Judas, a specific man called Saul of Tarsus, a specific thing that the guy was doing, he was praying, and a specific vision that the man had. It was the vision that Saul had seen a guy named Ananias. Why do you suppose that that vision is so specific? 
While it's necessary, it's important because God asked Ananias to do something bold and dangerous in meeting up with Saul. What's interesting here is this. God told Ananias about Saul's vision in Ananias' own vision. Another thing to think about is what Saul is doing. He's praying. This indicates that there truly is a change of heart in Saul, a man who formerly persecuted Christians. Before this conversion, Saul probably repeated traditional, formal prayers, mechanically, not from the heart. Prayers that were not prayed in Jesus' name. Prayers not done with humility. If you want to put it simply, he said many prayers in his life, but he had never truly prayed. And I want to show you how Ananias responds to God's vision. But before I do that, I think we need to take a couple of minutes to really understand the intensity of what God is really asking of Ananias. I can't see you all right now, but I want you to close your eyes for just a moment. Close your eyes for a minute. I want you to imagine it's the month of June, and the year on that calendar is 1943. I want you to imagine that you are a Christian of Jewish descent. You've been hiding for months in the attic of a trusted friend who is trying to hide you from the occupying Nazis. And I want you to imagine that God wakes you up in your sleep one night to give you these instructions. I want you to go to the mayor's house and ask for Adolf Hitler. He is praying to me right now. I have shown a vision of you coming in and laying his hands on him so that he can see again. How would you react and respond? Would you wrestle about this with God? Can open your eyes. Your response might have looked something like this. Hey, time out. Are you nuts, God? Are you crazy? This guy is a lunatic. He's a little cuckoo. He conquered all of Europe, and his only agenda is to round up your people. And I've heard he's coming to this town right now to send us all off to Auschwitz. I mean, can you blame somebody for responding like that? Ananias can't. Surely not him. He got some divine instructions like those we just heard in the illustration. And Ananias reacted about the same way. He says in verse 13, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. So now we can tell that Ananias has previously heard of what Saul has been doing against the believers. And he knew that Saul was on his way from Jerusalem. And I can only imagine how anxious the believers in Damascus were. Ananias' response to God's call to him is perfectly normal. It's logical. It's well-founded. But Ananias' response presumed that God needs some counseling or some instructions. In a way, Ananias is questioning, God, do you know what kind of person this guy is? 
I'm not so sure that this Saul guy has changed his character much. But God tells Ananias to go. In verse 15, God says about Paul, This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. And in verse 16, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Whoa! Let me say that it's okay to ask questions like this of God. That is how much God loves us. But God's response here to Ananias shows his mercy and his care of Ananias. God cares for everyone in this story. And God has a calling for Saul, but God didn't reveal that to him yet. However, God revealed it to Ananias before anybody else. God considered Saul his chosen instrument long before there was anything worthy in Saul at all. God knew what he could make of Saul, even when Saul or Ananias didn't know it. It's calling, his calling is twofold, to share the gospel with the Gentiles and kings and to the people of Israel, and to show Saul how much he must suffer for Jesus' name. What a sobering addition to the great call that God has placed upon Saul. And Saul would eventually leave a life of privilege to embrace a higher call, but a higher call with a lot of suffering. Go back to verse 17. It says, Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Guess what? We see that Ananias was obedient. He went. Ananias went without receiving one assurance of protection. Remember that God had told Ananias nothing except the fact that he had chosen to use Saul to spread his good news. I am sure that Ananias had to conquer any fear or suspicions to do what God asked him to do. But what a courageous servant he was. Now Saul's about to come out of his time of blindness and self-examination. Ananias goes to lay his hands on Saul and uses the words, Brother Saul. What a powerful way to communicate God's love. Blinded Saul could not see the love on Ananias' face, so Ananias had to communicate it through touch and voice. Ananias was there when Saul needed a friend. And the phrase, be filled with the Holy Spirit, is significant. Why? Because that's when we're born again. Because that's when we're born again. Because when we receive Christ, we receive the Holy Spirit. That is where Saul is healed from his blindness, which was both physical and spiritual. And I want you to know, please know, God did such an effective job at breaking Saul. But it wasn't God's intention to leave him broken. God wanted to break Saul 
so he could fill him and leave him filled. A German theologian, or theologian rather, uh, Richard H.C. Lenski wrote this. He says, quote, it is, not, it is often said that Saul was converted on the road to Damascus. Strictly speaking, this is not the fact. His conversion began in his encounter with the law, but it was not accomplished until the gospel entered his heart by faith, and that did not occur on the road, but in Damascus. End of quote. After Saul could see again, he was baptized immediately. He wanted to identify with Jesus and with the disciples of Jesus by being baptized. And that's the heart that we as a church are going to experience next week with our baptism service. The heart of baptism is to make a public declaration of, declaration of one's faith in Jesus. And I cannot wait to celebrate that next week with those who are being baptized. So I want to close this morning with two very brief points that we should take with us. First, no one is too far gone from God. No one is too far gone. No matter what we've done or what path we've taken in life, there's nothing that can separate us from God's love. The Apostle Paul, before his conversion, he was a blasphemer and a persecutor. He did a lot of bad stuff. Paul wrote this in 1 Timothy chapter 1. It's so powerful. It has a pattern associated with it that we can identify. 1 Timothy 1, starting at verse 13, says, Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example of the, for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. If this is a pattern, this is how we share that experience with the Apostle Paul. First, Jesus has to confront us with himself, with our sin, with our rebellion against him, and even of the sins that we did in ignorance. And then, as we put our faith in Jesus, we must humbly wait for the work within us that only he can do. Salvation is something that God does in us. And what we do is only a response to his work. You know, God finds some people who are not looking for him at all. Seeing how God reached Saul encourages us to believe that God can reach the people in our lives who are very far from him. Sometimes we give up trying to reach them and think that they will never come to Jesus. But let me encourage you that God can reach them. Pray for them. Love on them. 
The last thing is that it isn't enough to be broken before God, even though that is such a necessary part of salvation. But God only wants to use that brokenness to fill you with his Holy Spirit. So no one is too far gone from God. Second, we must show our obedience to God. The biggest challenge for Ananias was to overcome a fear of persecution. And he did. But what if Ananias had said, no, nope? Do you think we would have the life and ministry of Apostle Paul? No. I think we would. God had a high calling for Paul's life. God chose to use Ananias, an ordinary man, if the most prominent apostle of the day had come and ministered to Paul and then converted to Christ, people would say that Paul received his gospel from a man rather from, than from Jesus Christ. And in the same way, God needs to use that certain someone because there's a special work in them to do. If we say no, God will raise up another. And if they say no, another and another, and another, until they say, yes, Lord. Sometimes we say no because we're fearful of what could happen. But I want to encourage you this morning that we must not let fear and anxiety overcome our obedience to God because God wants to use you and you and you to further enhance his kingdom. So the next time the Lord calls you to do something, will you obey and say, here I am, Lord? Will you say, here I am, Lord, send me? Because when we reach out to others and share the gospel with them, God not only uses us to help them, he also strengthens our own faith. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your grace and your mercy towards us. We thank you that you have sent your son for us. We pray this morning that those of us who have heard this message and are struggling with their, with their faith, who are seeking you out in this time, Lord, may you reveal yourself to them and that they receive you, Christ. Help us as believers, Lord, to be in tune with your, call, your will for us, and that we're obedient to your word. May we hear your voice and say, here I am, Lord, send me. I'm available. Would you equip us, Lord? We pray for those in our lives that seem too far gone, Lord, in faith. I pray that you will reach out to them. May we be obedient to your will, Lord. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.